Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. We're going to continue our series in stewardship. Uh, We're winding this down as we enter the holiday season. We're going to spend this week and next stewarding, uh, talking about how we steward our finances. And so something needs to be kind of spoken of here at the very beginning. Um, If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Ron do a masterful job connecting the way that our giving is a key way that our spiritual development happens. And it's a good and clear reflection of our heart for the Lord is how we give. But whenever the church starts talking about money, we need to recognize pretty early on that for me to talk about your money is awkward for you and for me, because it's no small secret that my salary and those of everyone who works here at the church is completely supported by your giving. So when churches start talking about giving, people have a tendency to cry foul. That's a conflict of interest, that of course we would talk about giving because of course we want to get paid more money. But it's worth being said that, well, I hope it's clear that Nobody in ministry is in it for the money. And if you don't believe that our intentions are pure, I hope that I can convince you by the time that we're done here today. But let's do this. Before anybody starts throwing tomatoes, let's lay a few ground rules so that we understand each other pretty clearly. Here's a couple of things that New Life believes very strongly about giving. The first is we talk about your money because your money's connected to your heart. There's a direct link between your cash and your soul. Okay, so we don't talk about your cash to get more of your cash. We talk about your cash because it's a reflection of your heart. It's been said that a man needs to undergo two separate conversions in his life, the first of his soul, the second of his pocketbook, and it's the second one that really stumbles people up quite a bit. And so I want to convince you, I want to try to encourage you that when we here at New Life talk about what it means to be a good, cheerful, and generous giver, we're not doing so because... We need your money. In an absolute sense, I suppose that's true. But in an ultimate sense, we're after making sure that your wallet and your heart are in alignment with Jesus Christ. Because the more that we follow after Jesus, the more that we'll find that these three adjectives describe the way that we give. We here at New Life believe that giving should be cheerful, it should be generous, and it should be sacrificial. Those are the three words that I want to define our giving. Cheerful, generous, and sacrificial. So what that means is, is if your giving is cheerful, I believe it's 2 Corinthians 8 or 9, in which Paul says to the Corinthian believers, God loves a cheerful giver. Now how do you end up, no, 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 wait a minute. How am I supposed to feel good about giving money away? I work very hard to get money. Why should I feel good about giving it away? You can only feel good about being a generous, cheerful giver if you connect your generosity with something larger than yourself. That is, the advancement of the gospel within the kingdom of God and the hearts and lives of people being blessed and enhanced, physical needs being met, and the work of the church moving forward. So if you're disconnected from the fact that Jesus has a mission and the church's responsibility is to fall in line with that mission, which includes people preaching the gospel and healing the sick and setting up hospitals and education facilities, all of which, FYI, require money, then then your generosity will be begrudging. So new life is not into guilt-based giving. Let me say that again. We don't do guilt-based giving. 
We want your giving to be from the heart as a reflection of how excited you can be that we're on the same team moving forward for the same mission, for the same cause, to make Jesus look awesome to the world around us. So cheerful, it should be generous. Why? Because Jesus was generous. Did you know that Jesus gave up a lot? Jesus was rich. I don't know if you guys knew that. And the reason I say that is because every time you see Jesus in Scripture, when he's not on earth, he's in heaven. What's he sitting on? Throne. At my house, I sit on a chair. (laughs) Jesus sits on a throne. That means he's rich. He's rich. He's loaded. And he said, you know what? I don't care about that as much as I care about coming down here to give up of myself generously and then sacrificially. The cross is the biggest object lesson of God's sacrificial love. Are you to give generously? Yes. Are you to give until it hurts? Yes, sometimes. Why? Because in so doing, you're simply a reflection of the one who gave past the point of pain until the good work of God was brought about in the world. So we want to be cheerful, we want to be generous, we want to be sacrificial because all of those things describe Jesus and frankly, I want my life to reflect Jesus, okay? Uh, Lastly is this, 10% is a great guideline, but it's exactly that, it's a guideline. The tithe, what we call a 10% um, is a great mm, kind of benchmark, I guess, um, because it trains us to not live on all of our income. It's probably a good idea to try to schedule your budget so that you're living off of the 80%, saving 10, and then giving 10. But 10% is a double-edged sword because some people kind of need a lot of help to be brought up from that. But then I don't want you to stop there, as though now that you've kind of paid your 10%, you've put God on your bill pay, and then just becomes automatic, and you don't connect the fact that this is actually an act of worship. You heard last week that Ron and Annette make a point to structure their life and the budget that supports it so that there's a big margin between what it takes to live and how much they actually make. Now think about that. Most of us, when it comes down to why don't we give more, it's like, well, I can't. I'm so backed up with stress and debt and bills and loans and mortgages and a boat that there's nothing less. There's always more money, there's always more month than there is money. And part of us have bought into the American dream, 40 acres and an SUV, and we're just after stuff and it's driving our financial situation into the ground. And when genuine needs and opportunities arise where you can step in and fill the gap with your money, you can't. Because you know you're already overdue on X, Y, and Z bill. So part of what it means to be a cheerful, generous giver is restructuring your life. And this takes a healthy sit-down conversation with you and the spouse to say, what are we really living for? And how can we construct our budget so that there are those margins that we can be generous? Does that make sense? But 10%, it's a great guideline, but it's only that. If you're the single mom, if you just lost your job, don't hear 10% as guilt. That if you don't do it somehow, you're a bad Christian. Not at all. Not at all. Okay? But if you're sitting on piles of cash that's dedicated to just a ton of toys, reevaluate. Because it's all going to burn. And you want a good investment that's going to last for eternity. Okay? That being said, let's pray. Get into the text. Heavenly Father, thank you that your generosity has made us now rich. Thank you for the grace that's been poured out through your son, Jesus Christ. We want to recognize today that you are the author and the owner of everything that we have. We want to thank you for providing for us today. 
God, help our hearts and our habits to align with this idea of stewarding your stuff for your glory. God, we ask for wisdom and guidance in these affairs so that when the world looks at us, they see people who handle their money and they give glory to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I'm going to approach this topic of stewarding your finances and how to make money in a little bit different way this week. Normally, we have a home text, and we kind of work all the way through it. Today, we're going to see a ton of different biblical texts to try to build a biblical foundation for how we ought to go about stewarding our finances. The big umbrella idea under which everything falls is this, that God owns everything. God owns all. I'm going to give you several scriptures. We'll breeze through them pretty quickly. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. So by virtue of the fact that God is creator, he is also by definition the owner. And at nowhere in scripture does God sign over the title deed to earth to anyone else. It still belongs to him because he created it. Job 41.11, this is God speaking. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Aha, but the lawyer in you asks, well, what about what's above the heavens? To which I respond, Psalm 89.11, the heavens are yours and the earth also is yours. The world and, key word, all that is in it. You have founded them. Again, the argument goes back to on virtue of the fact that God is creator, he is also the owner. Okay, uh, Haggai, from the prophetic section of scripture, Haggai 2.8 says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Here, the commanders of heaven's army is laying claim to your cash. 1 Corinthians 4.7, question mark, what do you have that you did not receive. We could go on, there's a ton of scriptures along this line, but I think we've made the point that God owns everything. I wanna make sure we clarify this, because if God owns everything, yet in a very real sense, I still own my stuff. God values and God enhances or God approves of the ownership of private property. Case in point, 10 commandments. What do they say? Do not steal. Implied in not stealing is the fact that whatever it is you're about to take actually belongs to something and it's theirs and you don't have a right to it. Even though it might be ultimately God's, we, are the, we have a responsibility to own and to steward the things that are underneath our circle of influence. So this is where stewardship enters the picture. If we can agree that God is ultimately the owner of everything and the pronouns begin to shift from me and mine and ours to God's, that still doesn't alleviate the responsibility we have then to steward, manage, help, control the things that God has given us. You've heard it said that imitation is the highest form of what? Flattery. One of my life's goals is to let, is let other people see Jesus in the best possible light. That's a functional definition of what it means to glorify God. To glorify God means to let other people see him in the best possible light. I'm made in the image of God. So that means the way that I conduct my financial affairs ought to be a reflection of God. Tracking? So that if I do this in a way that is a reflection of God's characteristics, and let's list them. Uh, he's generous. Um, he has integrity. Uh, he makes things prosper and multiply. If I can do that to my stuff, then what am I doing? I'm imitating God. And in so doing, giving him glory. 
because imitation is the highest form of flattery. I'm giving God praise through conducting my daily affairs with how I approach money, stuff, and possessions by stewarding it in such a way that imitates God. That's a key point. So what this means is that when we talk about glorifying God, it's not some cloudy, fuzzy concept that we come and we stand and we lift our hands here in church on Sundays only. This is a Monday through Friday endeavor that a key way that we as Christians in the world glorify God is exactly through our stewardship of our finances. So if we're serious about obeying the greatest commandment, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Love others as yourself. So if you want to love God and love other people, we've got to get our money in order, right? Because on the loving God side, if our money is out of the core value of loving for God, that'll be reflected in our pocketbook, which will usually mean there's nothing left over for anyone else. So we have, we've failed in our opportunity to be able to love God and love money if we fail to steward our finances well. So this is what we're going to talk about. In order to steward your finances, you actually have to have some finances, and so I want to talk to you us about what's a biblical perspective on how to make money. But this is where it gets a little sticky. I want to show you this graph. This is a graph that shows unemployment rates in Clackamas County since 2000. You guys notice something interesting that happened in 2008? Unemployment rates doubled in 2008. Currently, statewide unemployment sits around 87 percent that's fully a percentage point higher than the national average okay do you guys know the difference between a recession and a depression a recession is when my neighbor loses his job but a depression is when i lose my job a ton of people lost their jobs in 2008 and 9 and still haven't found work so i want to acknowledge up front that before we start talking about money if you're sitting here and you're a God-fearing, Bible-believing, Christ-exalting, hard-working, unemployed person, don't let that last adjective wipe out the first four. Take heart. It stinks. It really stinks to be unemployed for a long time. Don't lose sight of the fact that God has promised that he won't leave, he won't forsake, he's still a good provider. And embrace the fact that potentially you're in a school of life right now that is training you up for a deep set of faith and godliness that those of us who are gainfully employed will never understand. Worse yet, unfortunately, many people who could least afford to lose their jobs did. This is a graph that shows you job losses in 2011 alone based on wage category. So if you're making basically minimum wage, 67,000 of those jobs disappeared from the Oregon economy in 2011 alone. All the way up to $20 an hour, collectively 108,000 jobs evaporated from the Oregon economy that paid less than $20 an hour. So that means that people who were already hurting, already struggling to get by, were the most affected by the recent downturn. So it's tough for a lot of people. It's tough for a lot of people. I want to acknowledge that up front so that what you don't hear is a lot of guilt based on the fact that you're not currently in the workforce. Please don't hear that. Okay. Now, I want to try to answer how it is that if we become allegiant to Jesus Christ and his lordship and we recognize that he owns stuff, 
How does that go about the way that we go about making money? Now, I don't know what church tradition, if any, that you grew up in. I grew up in church, and somewhere along the line, by osmosis, I kind of picked up this idea, this kind of the, that there's a hierarchy in Christianity, that there's kind of a caste system, if you will. And that means, basically, if you are a comma, I forgot where I am in my notes, this point, go back, all work is sacred. This is the big idea over which how you make money, the big idea is all work is sacred. What I mean by sacred is this, sacred is something that you can use as a form of worship. Your job is sacred because you can use your work as a way to worship God. Your job is not divine. That is worthy of worship itself. It is sacred in that it is an ability to worship the one who is divine. We get into big trouble when we start putting, well, we'll talk about what it means to be an idol or have your job as an idol. Okay, so back to the hierarchy idea. Within Christianity, we can kind of get this idea that there's a hierarchy. And here's what I mean. If you're a super-duper spiritual Christian, your ultimate career path will be overseas missionary, right? Because you're willing to sacrifice everything for Jesus, go get malaria in a third-world country for Jesus, and save a bunch of people because you really, really love Jesus, so you become an overseas missionary. But if you love Jesus a lot, but you still really like the comforts of America, you stay back on the home front and you go into ministry, which means that you're a youth pastor and that your sacrifice for Jesus is you get paid in donuts and pizza and you work long hours for sub-minimum wage pay. And if you're just a regular guy who loves Jesus, kind of, sure, I guess, then you go out and you get a real job in the work world and then you come to church on Sundays and your sacrifice for the kingdom of God is the fact that you're missing those early kickoff football games during the fall time, which is a big sacrifice for a lot of people and we need to acknowledge that. The fact that you're in church and there's a football game on is not to be overlooked. Never did I hear growing up the, this question. If somebody would ask me, son, are you really passionate for Jesus? Yeah. Have you thought about going into business? You see, we've got this split, this division, where all the super spiritual people end up in ministry and all the regular folks end up in the work world. How ridiculous is this, right? We think that just because I stand up here, I'm somehow holier or better. It's ridiculous. No. No, 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 no. You see, the Bible says that all work is sacred. There's no such thing as a secular job. Seriously, let me say that again. There's no such thing as a secular job. In God's eyes, all work is sacred. Let me demonstrate this to you, okay? Go back all the way to Genesis chapter one and two. God creates the Garden of Eden, which is really more like a big wildlife preserve, and he places Adam in it. And you know what God gives Adam as a job description? Now, this is before sin had ever entered the world, okay? So God gives Adam this job description in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to do what? With conviction. What's the text say? What was, what was Adam's job? To work. Wait a minute. You mean work isn't evil? Answer the question. If a good God creates work, what does that say about work? It's good. It's real good. But notice the kind of work that Adam was given to do. Landscape maintenance. <laughs> Animal husbandry. Plant cultivation. 
Adam's sacred responsibility was not leading small group Bible study, (laughs) praying, worshiping. Adam's act of worship to God, the reason Adam was created, was to sweat hard with a shovel in his hands. All work is sacred. We're going to talk about how work gets twisted, but when I grew up in high school, I spent years working in restaurants, which of course meant that I was a dishwasher. And um, you begin to quickly understand that there's a caste system there too, right? Okay, so here I am, dishwasher. I'm at the bottom of the barrel. There's no joking about that. Just above me, just barely, are the busboys. They actually get to see the clientele. They'll let those people out in public. Then above them are the waiters and the waitresses. Then above them are the line chefs. And then above them is the management. And the management at the top of the pyramid never talked to people at the bottom of the pyramid. But you know what I figured out of about four or five years working in restaurants as a dishwasher? If I stop doing my job, this whole thing's come and grind into a halt real quick. Real quick. See, sometimes those of us at the top have forgotten the fact that you were there based on the support of a ton of people at the bottom. A ton of people at the bottom. So, I did a little thought experiment this week, and I asked myself, who are the two most vital employees here at New Life Foursquare Church? Their names are Louisa and Juanita. This church campus, all seven acres and ten-some buildings, is kept spotless by two ladies who work extremely hard. Do you know why I say that they're the most vital, most important employees here on campus? Because if they stopped doing their job this week, somebody here would be dead next week. It's a simple matter of hygiene. (laughs) You'd catch something hideous off one of the urinal stalls, and then you'd be dead in ten days. Because if somebody's not around here disinfecting services, cleaning up after our kids, wiping up after a whole mass of humanity, carrying around all of these germs, those people are the most important people in this organization. Oftentimes, it's the people at the bottom, okay? We are so blessed to have these ladies. If you, if you get a chance to see them, they don't know I'm telling you about this, thank them because they do a fantastic job and they love their work, Okay? Because they understand something about this fact, that God has given us all work and it is sacred. It is sacred, okay? All work has dignity because a good God has created it for our benefit and his glory. This is true no matter how mundane or menial your job happens to be. I want to watch you and point you back to the Proverbs, how the ancient sages and men of wisdom valued work very highly. I'll give you three passages. I believe the first one here in Proverbs says, In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Proverbs 21-25 says, The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. Sluggard is a fantastic word that I wish more people would use. It just means a lazy man. Proverbs 13.4 says, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. The soul of the diligent is richly supplied. And then I want to point you to the words of Jesus. You've probably heard this before, but hear it now in a new light. Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works 
and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Oftentimes when we think about what good works is Jesus referring to, it must be giving, it must be praying, it must be serving the poor, it must be doing the things that happen primarily within the sacred sphere of church. But what happens when a bunch of people in church start doing good works around each other? We're just a bunch of flashlights in a box. And somebody flashing their high beams isn't going to make much of a difference to the dark world around us. Where do you get the opportunity to shine brightly before others? Not here at church. It's out there Monday through Friday. So no matter how small your candle might be, if you're in a dark place, embrace that fact. If your job environment is so caustic and ugly, you've got more of an opportunity than I ever will to actually influence people that need Jesus. Because your good work shines brightly before others so that people will glorify and honor your Father in heaven. And you know the people who are most able to do this are the people at the bottom. Because nobody expects somebody who's cleaning up stuff (laughs) to be happy about it. I got a job in college working as a nighttime janitor at a YMCA. And I got this job through a lady who had been there way too long. And she had turned bitter and sour and ugly. And she looked at me, and I was just some punk kid, skinny and didn't know anything. And when she gave me the job, I got this vibe from her that she was almost like cursing me, like, I want to see how long you can last. This is so ugly, the last guy left screaming. So my job every night when I showed up to the YMCA was to clean down the shower walls because all of this human hair and fat had been accumulating on the shower. I'm not joking. I used, it's disgust, this is the stuff that people do at work. I used a slaughterhouse grade animal fat cutter to spray down the walls inside this thing every night and I showed up and I was almost more motivated to do my job because I knew the person watching me was waiting for me to crack. Just saying, there are people out there. That's what their Mondays looks like, okay? Okay. But the sacredness of work, the dignity of all work, does not mean that it's easy, obviously. Sin, where did this all go wrong? Uh, Genesis chapter 3. Sin corrupted the human heart and all of creation, and so the pain of that has been that when God spoke to Adam, a man who was supposed to work the ground, he says that you will be attended by pain, thorns and thistles, and sweat. So the modern workplace now is full of injury, it is full of anxiety, it is full of carpal tunnel, it is full of um, workman comps claims that get unjustly denied, it's full of stress, it's hard. Work is hard. You didn't come to church to get that new revelation, so I want to move on quickly and tell you two specific ways that sin has twisted our perspective towards the good, holy, sacred environment of work. The characters I'm about to paint here, I'll do it in the extremes, knowing that most people lie in the middle, so don't get offended with me unless this actually describes you. (laughs) Two ways that sin corrupts and twists our perspective on work. They are laziness, which leads to underwork, and career obsession, which leads to overwork. Some of us who are inclined to laziness our highest goal is to do as little as possible and still get paid for it, which damages your reputation as a Christian in the workforce. 
you'll be more likely to make an idol out of rest. You'll despise long hours, extra somethings, because it means you're not at home with your feet kicked up and a beer in your hand. You're comfortable with killing time on your job, so you end up like these guys. And you're proud of it. It's a study that showed that 15% of men have admitted to looking at pornography on the job. Because we're comfortable keeping things that are obviously non-productive and far outside of our job description, solitaire, Facebook, open while we work. Because honoring company time, respecting our supervisors, doesn't mean much. You're also more likely to make a buffoon or a fool out of your boss, looking for ways to paint him as a fool, subhuman monster, somebody who's not worthy of your time or respect, and so that only gives you more motivation to do, again, as little as possible. Life becomes living for the weekend. I'm only here for the money. We value recreation and vacation above everything else. Scripture says, Proverbs 18, 9, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. You would never intentionally burn your office down, but you may go to work every day and do functionally the same because he who is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. If it's not laziness leading to underwork, then it can be career obsession leading to overwork. In this perspective, we're more prone to make an idol out of our career and make advancement and promotion and money and status and success and all the things that attend that our highest priority and goal. This is especially prominent for those of us in a white-collar, salaried environment. Your life becomes all about money, status, and possessions, and your drive for excellence is incredibly strong, but it's misguided because your drive for excellence isn't to glorify Christ, it's to advance the empire of you. You'll know this when you've been excellent and you didn't get acknowledged and you're angry because you did not get the recognition you deserve. So it comes down to this bumper sticker slogan. It's, he who dies with the most toys wins. Found this on the internet. This is a man's gravestone. He was audacious enough to carve the emblem of a Mercedes-Benz on his gravestone. Underneath where it says the dates of his life is literally inscribed, he who dies with the most toys wins. No, you just died. So in order to find success at work, sacrifices are made at home and to your health and to your relationships. And then here's the dangerous tipping point. When that begins to happen, you'll find that you're gaining the approval and the admiration of your supervisor, good. The envy of your fellow employees, good. But you're losing at home. And this is where it gets very dangerous. Because when a person begins to win at work but lose at home, it's human nature to go to the place where you feel appreciated, respected, and valued. So the downward spiral begins. More time at work, less time at home. 
and the people in your family who are left to pick up the pieces are deeply hurt. Some people coming to this realization later in life have found that there is no amount of money you can give to your kids after they leave the home to compensate for the time you did not spend with them when they were in the home. Don't use the logic that you're only doing this in order to provide a good environment for your children to live in. There is a boundary and there is a balance, and I'll leave it between you and the Holy Spirit to determine what that is, because here's what the Bible says, Proverbs 23, 4, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust in your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. You know the key problem with making an idol out of your work? One, idols always lie. They may give you that extra money, but then you may find that, lo and behold, all of your investments disappeared. And everything you worked so hard to find, all the sacrifices you made at home are now for naught. But here's the big deal. Keep this in mind. If you are making an idol out of your work, you are sacrificing everything so that it will be pleased, if it's your boss, if it's your status, if it's your sense of others' perception of you, none of those things love you back. None of those things have died for you. None of those things will ultimately fulfill you. And so if you give everything in your life to serve something that's not Jesus, you'll end up broken and hollow and very, very frustrated because idols don't love you back. So, where does the gospel enter the picture? Does the fact that Jesus came to earth, died on the cross, lived a sinless life, died a perfect death, have any influence, any bearing on the 90% of our life that's spent trying to make money and get by? Yes! Answer is, Colossians 3, here's the big idea. Both of these problems, underwork leading to laziness, or laziness leading to underwork, and career obsession leading to overwork is solved by this one expression, Jesus is your boss. Let me show you Colossians 3, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, comma. I want to make a quick note, if you're going to work tomorrow for someone you consider to be a total monster. I mean, a real bad person. You hate your job. You hate your boss. Guaranteed, you didn't have it as bad as first century Roman slaves. And to them and to us, the Bible says what? Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. No, 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 no. You genuinely have to obey and do a good job with sincerity of heart. Ouch, that's tough. Jesus is your God. He will give you strength. Fearing the Lord. Moving on. It says, whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Key phrase, you are serving the Lord Christ. Tomorrow morning when you wake up and you get on your clothes and you go to work, who are you working for? Jesus Christ. Who is your boss? Jesus Christ. To whom will you give an account? Jesus Christ. How does Jesus Christ being your boss solve the problem of underwork or laziness leading to underwork? 
It's because your boss isn't omniscient, but Jesus is. So all the time you spend wasting playing solitaire at work, guess what? God knows, and you will give an account. And more than just trying to scare you into good works, you're recognizing that if you care deeply about what the gospel has done and setting you free from sin and selfishness and death, then part of the response that that will have in your life naturally will be to reflect the goodness and grace of God in your work. Because work is good. Work is hard. But work is good. So you can go to work tomorrow reminding yourself that ultimately this is for Jesus. And the way that I conduct my affairs, especially in the menial, unforgiving, unrecognized areas, are the ways that I most reflect most clearly my allegiance to Jesus Christ. So if the gospel has gripped your heart, one of the byproducts of is you'll be a hard worker. What does that say to the person, though, who is overworking? How does the fact that Jesus is your boss solve that issue? If Jesus is your boss, really, then whose approval are you working for? Your boss today won't be your boss, chances are, in 5, 10, probably not even 20 years from now. So if you're sacrificing for that person who won't be in your life very soon, then you've forgotten this, that you're really serving the Lord Jesus Christ. It also frees you from having to live up to massively unrealistic expectations to be always available. I have an iPhone, many of you do, or smartphones. One of the shifts that's happened in the work world recently is that now people are available wherever they are. And there comes with it in many office cultures an expectation that if you're in management, that you need to be reached, that your emails need to be responded to instantaneously. Otherwise, it's a demonstration that you may be slacking off if I cannot get a hold of you whenever I so choose. And so this results in people taking their laptops and their iPads on vacations. They're checking their email 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night because they're committed to the fact that my status in my organization needs to be upheld by me just working really hard. And what's beginning to happen is that there's a shift as managers are beginning to realize that actually they don't get more productivity out of their people when they work them like dogs. So do not be a circus animal just doing tricks for treats. Find out what's really valuable, return those emails, and then ignore the rest. Wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough worries for itself. If you're sacrificing quality time with your kids at home because you're constantly checking your Blackberry, that's a value statement. And your kids and your wife and your family, they pick up on that. This is a very, this issue touches home too for people who are in pastoral ministry, just FYI. Um, there's never a point in the pastoral ministry where we can say, it's done. We've done our job. We can go home. There's no more need. There's always more needs than there are hours in the day. And so we can have a tendency to jump from frying pan to fire, trying to put out other people and meet other people's expectations because we've assumed the responsibility of a functional savior. We've got a weird Messiah complex that says, unless I'm involved, things are going to break down. So what this leads to uh, is a bunch of burned out, stressed out pastors the research supports this. New York Times published this article in 2010 that says members of the clergy now suffer from obesity, oof, hypertension, and depression at rates higher than most Americans. In the last decade, their use of antidepressants has risen while their life expectancy has fallen. Many would change jobs if they could. 
Now, if you did an informal survey of some of the pastoral staff here at New Life, you would probably find that the vast majority of them are living their dream job. I know I am. And you know who we have to thank for that? The good wisdom of Pastor Ron Swore and this leadership culture here at New Life that it says, your family is ministry too. Case in point, Ron sends his love and greetings, by the way. He's been running a million miles an hour. And he sent me a text this morning that says, James, rock and roll. I'm going to be at home today taking a rest. Some of us in the white-collar world, those of us, and I appreciate the fact that some of you are so stuck between a rock and a hard place where you've got so much happening underneath you that you simply cannot disconnect. And I'm praying that you get somebody that you can start delegating to in a big way real quick because it's not sustainable. And you need to have a talking to with your boss because you've got more on your plate than what you can appropriately handle. I'm just so thankful that here within this church culture, Ron and others understand the vital importance of keeping people healthy for the long run. For the long run. Okay? So, key question for those of us who are prone to overwork is this. Simply, whose approval are we seeking? If we agree on the fact that Jesus is our boss, then it's Jesus' approval that we need to seek. So that means that those of us who are lazy and underworking will step it up. Those of us who are career-oriented and overworking will learn to relax, trusting the one that's really going to be in control. Because here's what we need to maintain a focus on, is that in light of eternity, what are the things that are going to be ultimately important? Your relationship with Jesus Christ and the health of your soul. Mark 8, Jesus says, what does it profit a man? Gain the whole world and go and try. Do good, make money, give generously, do it. But not at the expense of losing your own soul. Keep that eternal perspective. So if we get this big picture down, that God owns everything and that all work is sacred, no matter how menial or trivial or mundane, I wanted to kind of close with three specific markers, road signs for us about how the Bible tells us what we ought to do in order to go about making money in the world today. So three value principles drawn out of scripture. The first is this, value your reputation above profit. Here's road sign number one. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver and gold. I recognize business ethics is a gray, murky, complex issue. But if you ever find yourself, businessman or woman, faced between gaining that client, impressing that vendor, or making that extra buck at the expense of compromising your values of integrity or law or conscience, choose integrity and let the money pass. One of your life goals ought to be to stay out of jail. (laughs) People go to jail because they value money more than they value a good name. Don't be that person. Don't be so short-sighted that you think that you can compromise that which is lasting, a legacy you can give to your sons and daughters, a business that stands head and shoulders above the rest in the community where people know that when they're dealing with you, they're dealing with a man of integrity, honesty, Don't sacrifice that for an extra 10 grand. It's not worth it. It will not serve you well in the long run. So value your reputation above extra profit. Secondly, emphasize diligence. A faithful man 
will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Now, you've got to understand something about Proverbs. Proverbs are exactly that, general observations about life, that this is the way that things generally turn out. They are not intended to be taken as promises. We get ourselves into a lot of trouble when we treat the book of Proverbs as a group of ironclad promises. So this, whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Anybody here use Instagram? Seven of us, and we're all under 30. Excellent. Instagram, in case you were wondering, is an app that you can get on your phone that allows you to take pictures and then apply these cool filters to them and then share them everywhere. Simple. This year, it was bought by Facebook. You guys know what Facebook? Okay, never mind. Uh, It was bought by Facebook for $1 billion because Zuckerberg had that in his back pocket. $1 billion, this outfit got started. You know who was in charge of this outfit? A bunch of college dropouts and their buddies. You know how long they had been in existence as an organization when they got bought for $1 billion? Less than 500 days, year and a half. They went from zero to $1 billion in 500 days. That sounds really cool, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I wonder what will be the end of these young men. Anybody ever fantasize about what it would be like to win the lottery? Anybody actually looked up statistics about people who do? You want to talk about the most unhappy, stressed, and broke segment of society? Last point, uh, professional football athletes, heard this recently. Fully 60% of NFL players are broke. Chapter 11, broke, five years after they quit playing. What happens? You sign a 20-year-old kid to a $20 million contract, and what do you expect him to do? Right? Whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Listen, if your retirement plan right now is the lottery, then I hope to God you stay single because nobody needs to be dragged down in that boat of dysfunction. And if that is you and you are married, get into the Dave Ramsey class because you need help. Don't hasten to be rich. What do you do? You make your money slow. You make your money slow. You be faithful. You show up every day. You have wisdom and counselors in your life so that the money doesn't ruin you. Money's money's morally neutral. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil and throws many people into pangs and they're pierced themselves through with much suffering, 1 Timothy. But money itself can be fantastic. I wish more Christians had more money because that means there's more slice of the pie that we can give out to advance the kingdom of God. But make it slow so that when God does bless you, you know what to do with it. Keep your head on straight. Thirdly, crush laziness before it crushes you. Crush laziness before it will crush you. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and empty cupboards like an armed man. Now, it's worth pointing out that this particular proverb is probably addressing those of us who are more prone to laziness and underwork. Those of us really do need a swift kick in the pants to get off the couch and actually do something. For those of us who are prone to career orientation and overwork, this doesn't necessarily apply. 
Reason being is because I personally believe that taking a nap can be a tremendous act of faith. How so? Because if it means if you shut it down for a little bit, if you disconnect, if you actually, novel idea, honor Scripture's idea of Sabbath and say, everything that's happening can wait. I'm going to reflect God himself who chose to rest one day a week. Your work is sacred. Also, your rest is sacred. Okay? So if you're this person, right, taking a nap is simply a faith step to say that there is one person who never slumbers or sleeps, and his name is Jesus, not me. And when I nap, he's still in control, and I'm not going to wake up to chaos. He's got it covered. I can trust that he's still good, that he's still working on my behalf. I can shut it down, shift into neutral, put on the brake. It's all right. World's not going to end. Have a hyperinflated view of yourself in the world today, and you've missed out on the fact that Jesus is still there saying, what are you, Why don't you let me work for you? So, some of us here that are lazy and underworking, get off the couch. Some of us that are career oriented and overworking, get on the couch. All for the glory of God and the good of all people, because here's what I believe. If you treat your work as sacred, as a means by which you glory and honor, honor Christ by imitating Him, then other people will see your good work and they will see Jesus in the best possible light, which is the point of everything. Don't miss out on the fact that what you do Monday through Friday is the central, is a central aspect to what it means to worship God in the 21st century. I want to invite our prayer teams to come forward and we'll pray. Jesus, thank you for redeeming work. God, I pray for those of us that are out of work. Bless them. God, open up doors of opportunity. God, I pray I could just come against the spirit of discouragement and depression and self-hatred that comes with long-term unemployment. God, I pray that you speak peace to them, that you show them opportunities for them to be able to be gainfully employed on a living wage that will be able to support their family. God, I pray for those of us that are just lazy and are mooches and are expecting everybody else to do stuff for us. God, convict us. Help us to repent of sin and be so staggered by how amazing you are that we get off the couch every day to go to work, to work hard for your glory. And God, help those of us that are stuck between a rock and a hard place. They're in charge of way too much. They're doing seven people's jobs and they're stressed. God, help them to gain some sense of sanity in their calendar, to get on vacation, to shut it down for your glory and their good. God, help us to rest. Help us to take Sabbath so that we can be people that show up the next day eager to make you look good in the sight of our employees and our employers. We commit our work lives and the money we make into your hands. Help us not be foolish. Help us be wise. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503 503- 266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.